This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. It was just another night for a family who were at home and preparing to go to bed. The two children were asleep and their parents had just finished their showers. Then there was a knock at the door which would forever change the lives of the four people in the house. This is Apple for the Teacher, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Anna Thomas. Today's episode is called Plot Twist. The family went through a terrifying ordeal. What happened? A married couple with two children lived in the small town of Gillette in the state of Wyoming in the U.S., Their children were 13 and 10 years old, and the couple had been married for 14 years. She was a high school maths teacher and worked at the Campbell County High School and was pursuing a master's degree in education administration. The town of Gillette, where they lived, was a coal mining town. Her husband worked at the coal mine as an accountant. In recent times, there had been rumours that some of the staff at the mine would be laid off. And that's when the mine received a very strange phone call from a person making threats if people lost their jobs. Then one day, the teacher noticed a strange man near her house. He was dressed in overalls and wore cowboy boots and had wire-rimmed glasses on. She decided to speak to her neighbours about the man and asked whether they had seen him too, but they hadn't. She never saw him again, so thought nothing more of it. It was then a Friday night in 1998 when the couple went out to a sports bar with some friends. After they got home, it was quite late so they got ready for bed. Their children were already asleep and that's when they heard a knock at the door. The husband answered the door and their lives were changed in an instant. A man wearing a dark ski mask forced his way in. His wife was in another room but heard an argument. She then walked in on the men arguing about something to do with the coal mine where her husband worked. The situation soon got out of control as the man produced a knife and started stabbing her husband. She tried to flee but he grabbed her and she was then subjected to a sexual assault. He then bound her hands together and also went into the children's bedrooms and tied them up as well. The man then forced her into her pickup truck and they drove off. Terrified, she knew she had to try to get out of the vehicle and took her opportunity when the car came to a stop. She escaped and ran down the road until she found a drainage culvert and hid from the man. Her heart was pounding with fear that at any moment he would find her. However, he didn't and she stayed hidden for hours until about 5am in the morning. That was when two people were driving along the road and saw her truck on fire. The man had set it alight. They called for police and the fire service and when they arrived, she then appeared from her hiding place. She was hysterical as she recounted to the police what happened. A search was done of the area, but the suspect was not located. After the police were dispatched to her house, they found a devastating scene. Her husband was dead and the children were still tied up, but they were okay. She was taken to the hospital and given a sexual assault test 
and she was also treated for a cigar burn on her back. She was then taken to the police station and gave her account of what happened. She said she thought the man was Hispanic, that he had stabbed her husband and then raped her. The children were then tied up and he abducted her in her own truck, but she was able to get away. The police soon became aware that her account didn't match the crime scene. They had found her husband with stab wounds, but it was also clear that he had also been shot. However, she never mentioned anything about the intruder shooting her husband. The police then did a gun residue test on her hands and clothes. Meanwhile, she had gone away to visit a friend later on that same Saturday, but called the police with some further information. She admitted that her husband had been shot, but that the intruder had forced her to shoot her husband. So, she said if the gun residue was found to be hers, then this was the reason why. The police then turned their attention to interviewing people at her school, and they were made aware of rumours that the teacher had been having an affair with the school principal. They wanted to interview him, but he had been away at a conference that weekend. However, after getting a search warrant, they found a gun at his residence, which was right across the road from the teacher's house. By now, the police had serious concerns about the story the woman had given them. Firstly, her initial story of not knowing her husband had been shot didn't add up. How could she not have heard the shots in the house? She then later says she was forced to shoot him by the intruder. So, looking at the timeline again, he is shot dead on Friday night, and later on the Saturday, she goes to stay with friends. On the Sunday, the police contacted her and told her that they had found the gun at her principal's house across the road. They also informed her that they wanted her to come to the police station for some further questioning. Then, later on that Sunday, the police received the news that the teacher had shot herself dead. Up until that point, the police were aware of the inconsistencies in her story and after further investigations, they determined that she had concocted the entire murder-abduction story. Here is what they concluded. After interviewing the principal, it was determined that they indeed had been having an affair for four years. He would actually spend time at the couple's house with the three of them socialising together, with her husband oblivious to the affair. She also had a key to the principal's house. He had been away that weekend, but said he knew nothing of her plan to kill her husband. He admitted that he was in love with her. The police believed the motive for the murder was that she feared if he found out about the affair that a divorce would then ensue. She was fearful of losing custody of the children. Her husband himself had divorced his first wife and gained custody of his daughter, and she may have feared the same thing happening with her children. The children were also interviewed, and they stated that even though the intruder had a mask on, that they recognised it was their mother. When she tied them up, they just thought it was a game and went along with it. So she hatched a plan to murder her husband and the first part of the plan was to phone his work and threaten to kill someone if the proposed layoffs occurred. 
she wanted to look like an employee at her husband's work was fearful of losing his job and therefore he would kill him as he worked there as the accountant. So she felt that this would provide a plausible motive. The next part of the plan was to talk to her neighbours and tell them that she had seen a strange man near her house. The police believed she made this up, which would then back up the story of the intruder killing her husband. The description of the man that she gave her neighbours was the same as the intruder who came into the house. So she then went to the principal's house to get his gun, as she knew he was away that weekend. But she had loaded the gun with the wrong bullets, and the gun misfired. He was wounded, but only superficially. That's when she used his six-inch hunting knife to stab him to death instead. She then dragged his body down into the basement and faked signs of a struggle in the house. She cleaned the blood off the gun and returned it to the principal's house, then driving off in her own car. She then found a spot where she parked the car and took the clothes off. The intruder had supposedly worn the overalls and the cowboy boots. She put the clothes in the car and then set it on fire. We then saw how she hid in the drain culvert until the passerby saw the burning car. The sexual assault test that she had 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 been inconclusive and they also believed that she had inflicted the cigar burn on her back herself. When the real story emerged, everyone who knew the couple were in total disbelief about the murder-suicide. One of their friends had only seen them a few weeks earlier at their daughter's basketball game. She had known them for more than 10 years and said, They sat right beside us and we talked the entire time and made jokes and laughed. And I can still remember he was rubbing her shoulder. It's a huge shock. They were very affectionate to one another in public. You never know the subtleties of relationships. So what do you think? What a wild story, right? But what I wondered when I read about this story was the children. They had apparently stayed in their room while all of this was happening. Surely they would have heard the shots. She was found the next morning, and yet the kids didn't raise any alarms. The police had gone over to the house to find the man dead, but how hadn't the kids found him first? Perhaps she tied them to some furniture so that they couldn't come out of their room. But what an awful thing to have to go through. Yes, at first they thought it was a game, but not after being tied up for hours and hours and then into the next morning. Can you imagine how they must have been feeling? She didn't want to lose her kids, yet she puts them through this. It just does not make sense. Now they have no father or mother. Stories like this one that involve kids and relationship issues are certainly not uncommon. But as a true crime listener, it totally floors me how many cases there are of stories like this involving the murder of spouses for the sake of wanting custody of the children. But as we have seen, she made a totally useless murderer. Her plan was so poorly thought out, but so, so sadly, those poor children now have to pay the price. How can you really love your children and do that to them? She must have had a warped sense of thinking that killing her husband showed how much she loved her children and didn't want to lose them. So in her mind, it was justified. And you may have noticed that I didn't use her name as I try not to do 
so as not to give perpetrators any more notoriety. But the father was named John Trover, and I found that people had very good things to say about him. People like her want their cake and to eat it too. She wanted a lover, but to keep her children as well. How about doing the honourable thing? Divorce your husband and let the courts decide the custody matter. What a ridiculous plan. Those poor children now are without both parents and they have to live the rest of their lives knowing what their mother did. So now let's have a short break before the next story. This next story is called The Cookie Monster. A student brought some cookies to school to share with her classmates. So what happened? So it's a very common thing in schools for students who are having their birthday to bring in cupcakes or something else to hand out to their classmates to help celebrate their birthday. We do this in schools all the time. This story involved a girl who brought some cookies to school to share. And you will now hear an account from a mother of a student who explains what happened. So this is definitely one of the weirdest incidents that I've been involved with in my life. Back in October 2018, my family and I were on vacation at Disneyland. One of the things I really enjoy about taking the kids to Disneyland is all that standing around in line for rides gives lots of time to chat with my kids and get caught up on what's going on at school and in their social lives. While waiting in line for the Haunted Mansion, my youngest daughter started telling me about something weird that had happened at her high school earlier in the week. She proceeded to tell me a story that was so shocking and strange that it was truly hard to believe. On October the 4th, my daughter was settling into one of her classes at her high school. While waiting for the class to begin, one of her fellow students started handing out homemade sugar cookies to the other students. The student offering the cookies was telling everybody that the cookies had a special ingredient baked into them. The student then further revealed that the special ingredient was her grandfather's cremated remains. Thankfully, my daughter was already weary of this student and did not eat any of the cookies, but she did absolutely believe that the cookies likely contained cremains just like the girl had said. But other students did eat the cookies. Disturbingly, some students went ahead and ate the cookies after they were made aware that they contained human remains. My daughter explained to me that she had actually brought her grandfather's urn to school days before the cookie incident. She handed it around to her friends in class. She traded the opportunity to let another student babysit the urn if he would trade seats with her in class. My daughter indicated that their teacher seemed aware that the student had the urn but did not do anything about it. Shortly after the cookie incident, my daughter was called to the principal's office. She was asked if she had eaten any of the cookies. She told the principal that she had not and further told him that the whole situation was totally disgusting. The principal had my daughter sign a written statement about what she had witnessed in class. Now this is all pretty shocking of course, but here's the part that really made my blood boil. 
after the principal had my daughter sign the statement, he told my daughter to not tell anyone about what happened, not even your parents. My kid is a smart kid. She knows that if an adult is telling her to not tell her parents about something, that's a huge indicator that she should absolutely tell us about it. I immediately contacted the principal as soon as we got back home. I met with him to get firsthand an explanation of what had happened. He did not offer any details about the incident, but did not deny that it had happened. Overall, he did not seem at all concerned that I was upset. I told him that the school should have, at least privately, notified the families of students who were in class and had the cookies offered to them. I also told him that I did not appreciate him pulling my kid into the office, taking a statement and then telling her to keep it a secret. I requested that I be notified if my daughter was brought into the office in the future. To this, he responded with a smug smile, saying, I don't have to tell you anything. A couple more days went by. The school didn't notify parents about what happened and no further information was forthcoming. The student who handed out the cookies continued to attend class without being held accountable or, more importantly, getting the help that she obviously needed. The school was fairly prestigious and it was pretty obvious that they were way more interested in protecting their reputation than in protecting their students. After a few days of failing to get more info from the school district, my husband decided that the only other thing that we could do was to go to the media with the story. The story was then featured on the TV news and that's when the police got involved. At first, they could not confirm that the cookies had cremains in them. Big surprise, the school had thrown out the box of cookies that they confiscated, so they couldn't be tested. Eventually, it did come out that the whole thing was true. The police were not really able to do anything as there is apparently no California law against handing out baked goods with human remains in them. In the end, the school was forced to do what they should have done at the beginning of the whole fiasco. They released a statement acknowledging the incident, reassuring parents that the cookies were not harmful and that they were dealing with the situation. The whole thing was just so stupidly mishandled. The school took an incident that, while bizarre, could have been easily managed and would have probably passed quietly. Instead, in an effort to cover up the whole thing, it ended up just blowing up in their face. Now, here is an account of a student who described what happened. He said, Two weeks ago, I was just about to go into my sixth period class, environmental science, and a girl who was also in my class stopped me and asked me if I wanted a cookie. And I knew her, so I figured, it's a cookie, why not? The boy said, so I took a bite. She told me there's a special ingredient in the cookie. I was kind of worried. I thought that she put drugs in it or something. So I asked her if, like, is this a weed cookie or something? And she said no. She said it was her grandpa's ashes. And then she kind of laughed. And I was really, I was kind of horrified. But class was about to start and I wasn't exactly sure what to do. So I held the cookie in my hand and I walked into the class. And right when we got there, 
we were supposed to have 40 minutes of work time and we weren't allowed to move or get out of our seats. So I had the cookie with me while I was working. I wasn't sure what to do. The taste itself wasn't any different, but if you ever ate sand as a kid, you can feel it crunching between your teeth. So there was a tiny bit of that. The percentage that was ashes was very, very small. So overall, it was like a regular sugar cookie. I looked in the middle of it and there were a few tiny grey flecks. I asked her if she was serious and she said yes and I believed her. She had mentioned her grandfather's ashes before. She once offered me her grandfather's ashes if I would switch seats with another kid. I didn't believe her and then she pulled out the urn. Normally, if it was someone else, I would not have believed it, but I definitely believed her. So then, the police got involved and investigated what happened. Here is the police statement. They're juveniles, and it's not a heinous or serious crime. There was no public health risk either. We really don't think it fits into any crime section. However, they looked into a law which dealt with mishandling human remains, but they decided that this law didn't apply to the cookies. Ultimately, the police decided to let the school handle the matter. The school principal made a statement which said, The incident has been particularly challenging and we have responded appropriately and in the most respectful and dignified way possible. Those who were involved are remorseful and this is now a personal family matter. Well, when they say they responded appropriately, well, as we saw from the mother's account, they certainly didn't. Now, I could not find any more information about what happened in this story, so it seems that the matter was resolved. None of the children got sick from eating the cookies, but here is what a microbiologist from a university said about the incident. He said, Cremation essentially mineralizes the human body and produces ashes that are rich in carbon and not much of a health concern. Proper cremation will remove all infectious properties of the remains, thus allowing people to take the ashes home and store them in living spaces. So he believed the ash wasn't toxic and didn't carry any diseases, but there could be one possible danger, he said. The one potential concern worthy of consideration would be heavy metals, as can be found particularly in tooth fillings. However, he went on to say that these metals are often removed from the ashes after cremation and that you would also need to consume a lot of these heavy metals for them to pose a significant danger. So now while I was researching this story, I came across another incident which occurred at a kindergarten in China. A father received a call from his child's kindergarten saying that his child had vomited and fainted. When he arrived, he found his son unconscious and he also noticed that other children were sick too. He said the vomit was all over their pants. There were other children who were also throwing up and they looked pale. In total, 25 children became sick, forcing the authorities to do a thorough investigation, and it was found that all of the children had eaten porridge that morning. After testing the porridge, it was found to contain 
Nitrate. Nitrate is toxic and a likely carcinogen, which is used in fertilizers, food preservation, and even munitions and explosives. At high levels, it can stop the human body from properly absorbing oxygen. So it seemed that someone had deliberately poisoned the porridge and the police were finally able to apprehend a teacher at the kindergarten. She confessed, saying the motive was due to an argument with another colleague regarding student management issues. So she decided to poison the children in the colleague's class. The police were also alerted to the woman's previous history of trying to poison her own husband. She had poured nitrate into his drink, but he had been okay. All of the children eventually recovered, except for one boy who had remained in hospital for 10 months, and he eventually succumbed to the poison. The woman was found guilty and sentenced to death. The judge said, Wang Yun's criminal motives are despicable. Her viciousness is extremely deep. Her criminal methods and plot are extremely bad, and the consequences are particularly serious, and she should be punished severely in accordance with the law. As we have seen in this podcast, schools are often the target of various types of criminal acts, and shootings seem to be the preferred method to inflict harm to large numbers of people. However, in China, school shootings are almost non-existent due to the strict firearms laws. So in China, attacks on schools are often done through other weapons such as knives, cleavers and hammers. But as seen in this story, poisoning is also another method used. Then in another incident at a kindergarten in China, some children began to suffer from severe convulsions and started foaming at the mouth. Investigations found that yogurt they had eaten had been laced with rat poison. The owner of another kindergarten had deliberately poisoned the yogurt, intending to harm the students at the rival kindergarten. There was intense competition in China for kindergartens to attract students to their schools, and this was the motive for the poisoning to tarnish the reputation of the school and therefore was simply a pursuit of profit. Two children ended up dying. But the way the poison found its way to the students was very bizarre. The accused put the poison in a bottle of yogurt and then into a bag that contained school supplies. The bag was then left on the street near the competitor's school. The grandmother of one of the children who died saw the bag and took it home giving it to the two children. The grandmother herself had ingested some of the yogurt and was taken to hospital but recovered. How strange is that, that the grandmother just found this bag on the street? Why did she take it? Perhaps they were poor and it didn't seem to be a very efficient way to try to poison people by leaving it on the street. But then again, we can see that it worked. So the question that needs to be asked is, why is there such intense competition between kindergartens? It's due to the insufficient investment in public kindergartens, which has led to a shortage of vacancies. So then private kindergartens were set up to fill the void, but many don't have enough money to hire qualified teachers, so therefore 
they can't attract enough students. As we have seen throughout the podcast, schools have been targeted for a number of reasons, mainly through shootings and knife attacks, and usually because certain individuals have a gripe against others or the government, or as a way to inflict pain on others as they had had inflicted on them. But these stories showed another method used, that of poisoning. And this theme will continue into the next episode. So now let's preview the next episode. It's called What's Your Poison? The school students got sick with a mysterious illness. What was it? And in this episode, I will leave you with this quote. Sometimes I think about skipping school, but then I remember that I'm the teacher. Bye for now and remember to be a good apple.